Education in Europe is brought to you by the Green European Foundation with financial support from the Robert Bosch Stiftung and the European Parliament. In a time when so much of our world is changing more rapidly than we can often keep up, our democracies in Europe and around the world are being tested. The challenges are many, but one thing remains fundamental. Without the participation of an active citizenship, no democratic system can remain healthy and continue to thrive. That also means that young people must become involved, conversant in change with the skills to shape the world they want to live in. David Kerr has dedicated a better part of his career to citizenship education. He works to shape curricula and programs that encourage young people to use their voice and contribute to their communities. As the head of initial teacher training at the University of Reading and consultant director of education at the NGO Young Citizens based in London, he focuses on schools and teachers the building blocks of the next generation of informed and active citizens. I think we, we live in an age where there is an increased demand for effective citizenship education. We live in an age of uncertainty, and I think that's because of the rapid pace of change in society. Things, for compared when I was growing up, the pace of change was much slower but now change is happening so quickly that even adults don't feel secure in the world. Uh, they're having to learn and relearn all the time, aren't they? Things are happening, it's climate change, it's populism, it's nationalism, it's digital, it's extremism, the gap between the rich and the poor. It seems to be uh, crisis after crisis. And I think the reason why people want effective citizenship education, it, it's a way of giving people some confidence and control about what's actually happening in their lives rather than constantly being done to. You have an opportunity to make decisions, to influence the way things are actually going. It's about knowing if you want to if you want to get something done or changed in a in a community, how you actually go about that and realize that they can have a voice. But those voices have got to start somewhere. I'm Benjamin Lorch, and this is Education in Europe. Here, we talk with dedicated practitioners, scholars, and policymakers from across the European spectrum, each of them working with young people to strengthen our democracies and cultivate the next generation of informed and active European citizens. David Kerr, welcome to Education in Europe, and thanks for being here. I'd like to start with the challenge you're working on. The issue is often called the democratic deficit. Can you tell me about that? What is the democratic deficit and why is it important that it be addressed? But the whole idea of the democratic deficit is the idea that people are becoming disassociated from civic life, from the communities that kind of bond them. They no longer see voting as a civic duty. They may turn out and vote or they may not because they either don't think they have a voice or they don't feel that they have to use the voice. And I think that that's incredibly dangerous for democracy. If you get that kind of deficit, it becomes a habit that you're much more likely to continue as you actually get older. And what political scientists are worried about is that this democratic deficit develops for younger voters or younger people. So maybe you're, you know, you're, you're 18 to, to 30, you're busy and you're live, you're trying to find a job, uh, you're trying to um, maybe s settle down with a family, those kind of things. 
and therefore you don't have time to get involved in civic life. But the danger is that becomes a habit then, and therefore you don't you don't engage and you actually drop away. And is there a more nuanced view between those who vote and those who don't? What was what was being quite interesting is there was a study done in the in Sweden, and they identified um, four groups by the time that people had got into their um, early twenties. Uh, there was a group who were engaged. They 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 were fully committed to civic life or engaged in lots of things. There was a large group of what they called standby citizens. So they were kind of engaged, but they needed to be prompted if they really needed to step in. And then the two other groups were there was there were those who had become disengaged. They were starting to drop out of the system. They hadn't fully gone but they were starting to drop out. And then the final group, which is the most worrying, were the unengaged. They'd gone. No one knew how to get to them. They weren't coming back. Huh. Is there an example that comes to mind uh, of the unengaged, the standby citizen? What are the, what's the effect? Yeah, I think it's encapsulated in what happened over the Brexit vote in the UK, because I think there were a lot of standby citizens who believed that the vote was going to go the way of we're staying in Europe, and given it that the, the, the margin was so small, less than a million, I think there are a lot of people kicking themselves that they didn't actually participate in the vote because things might have been a bit different. And that's a real sign of how the democratic deficit and this idea of standby citizens can have really negative implications for democracy. Now, those who are fully unengaged, those disconnected, divorced from democratic participation, what is, what is their experience? What are the components and drivers of that disassociation? I mean, it'll be a variety of things when it, if, if we're getting into the hard to reach now, you'll get those kids who um, recognise that the system is against them from an early age. So because we get so much, certainly in England and maybe other countries now, you get a lot of academic testing from a very young age in schools. So people start to realise that the system's not for them. They're marked out as a failure. So they can feel that the education, political, social system with the gaps between rich and poor are actually against them. And therefore, there's no point in engaging because it's not a system that was actually built to benefit them. There'll also be the element who um, actually want to engage and they really want to affect change, but their opportunities are either limited to do that or their experiences are turn out to be very frustrating they do all the right things, they gather their information, they collect people together, they put their views forward, and then they're ignored. So what tends to happen with a lot of young people now, there's a real danger that we talk about student voice, um, engaging with young people, and there's a real danger in schools and elsewhere that there's a lot of consultation of young people. So you tick the box and say, yeah, we asked the young people, but there isn't real listening to them. And they start to realise, and you get this with, I don't know, many countries, school councils, which are basically set up by the adults, for the adults, and young people don't have a, a real sense of participation and engagement and any idea that they can, they can affect change. And therefore, older kids just realise it's rigged and don't necessarily participate. And I think there's a danger now that the political system in many countries has ended up like that. It's run by a small elite who don't listen got their vested interests, um, and therefore that's causing a lot of frustration. And I think you can see that in society with 
things like the the global change, the climate change movement, lots of very frustrated young people, and the same with the Black Lives Matters movement. Because I think fundamentally, people want democracy to work. What they don't do is they don't trust the people who are running democracy. And therefore, that's why you're getting bigger and bigger democratic deficits. And I think COVID is throwing a massive light on that. You've worked extensively to lower the democratic deficit through citizenship education programs and address some of the problems you just mentioned. So let's get into that. Can you briefly introduce us to the groundwork and the pillars of citizenship education? Tell us what it's all about. So um, basically, citizenship education, um, it's about helping young people to in, to understand and engage with power structures in society. So it's got two core components or elements. There's a cognitive, if we're using the technical term, there's a cognitive element, which is um, about knowing and learning. And then there's an effective element, which is about doing or acting. And the cognitive element um, is about knowledge and understanding. So learning about institutions, uh, how they work, that could be formal, courts of law, parliaments, local councils, school council, those kind of things. So you need you need a knowledge about how the system works. And then you need to have some skills. So you need to be able to collect information, talk to others, find out information, pull it together, assess it, present it, a strong uh, talking element in there, uh, engagement element. And then there are attitudes that you, you develop um, as you go along, cooperation, uh, mutuality, discussion, those kind of things. And there are also values that underpin it. So um, a lot will be around civic and human rights values um, as you actually go through. So that's the knowing and learning bit. But if you really want full citizenship education, you also need the effective or doing bit because it's not enough just to learn about citizenship education from a textbook. That might be called, uh, in many countries, old-style civics. Kids just learned about the system, but they didn't learn how to engage with it. So you need opportunities to put that learning into practice, be it in your class, in your school community, in your local community, in your uh, regional or national community, and then maybe in your European community. And as you get older, hopefully you get more and more of those opportunities. And what you basically need is you need the, the, the knowing and the doing to act together. So you learn about how the system works. You then try and make some change in the system. And then you find out you actually need to learn more if you want to make real change. So you're constantly learning and doing. So it's a mixture between the brain and the heart. feels to me like both of those things are being challenged these days. I mean, we're living in a pretty, a, a very demanding year, aren't we? I think we, we live in an age where there is an increased demand for effective citizenship education. We li live in an age of uncertainty. And I think that's because of the rapid pace of change in society. Things for compared when I was growing up, the pace of change was much slower. But now change is happening so quickly that even adults don't feel secure in the world. Uh, they're having to learn and relearn all the time, aren't they? Things are happening. It's climate change, it's populism, it's nationalism, it's digital, it's extremism, the gap between the rich and the poor. It seems to be uh, crisis after crisis. 
And I think the reason why people want effective citizenship education, it, it's a way of giving people some confidence and control about what's actually happening in their lives rather than constantly being done to. You have an opportunity to make decisions, to influence the way things are actually going. It's about knowing if you want to if you want to get something done or changed in a in a community, how you actually go about that, and realise that they can um, have a voice. But those voices have got to start somewhere. You are listening to Education in Europe, brought to you by the Green European Foundation, with financial support from the Robert Bosch Stiftung and the European Parliament. Let's get back to our conversation. If you've just joined us, we're talking with David Kerr, an expert on citizenship education. David, when is the critical time to start talking to kids about participation in civic life? Is there an important window in their development to begin those conversations? Young people have developed most of their attitudes by the time they're 14 to 16, and they don't actually change much before that. So the role of education, the role of schools is critically important in um, effective citizenship education and really influencing young people at the, um, op- at, the, at the point when they can be most influenced. They're soaking up an awful lot about the world around them. They're growing cognitively, they're growing physically, they're growing socially, and they're inquisitive and they're asking questions. And therefore, it's, it's important that someone is able to answer those questions and help direct them and find out information rather than just probably as I was a kid, you're left to do it by yourself. And what's the experience of young people as they become more aware of the world around them? What's the broadening of their perspective and identity like when when their world begins to grow? So they suddenly realize that they not only live in a community, but they live in a country. They also live in a region, a lot of European stuff, Um, just simple stuff through culture. I mean, I'm a great sports fan, so every kid knows European Champions League, um, European dimensions of um, sports and stuff, plus culture, whether it's the Eurovision Song Contest, all those kind of things, plus they've got the European passports. So there's a really strong European identity that kind of runs through, and then you realise it's suddenly global. You're looking at global warming, those kind of things. It's all right, you might sort it out within your own region or your own community, but it's affected by what happens elsewhere. So you kind of layer in different aspects of that. Um, because the world has become much more interconnected and complex from the time I was actually growing up. So schools and teachers are central to your work, but why start at the school level? Why start at that location? So schools are becoming um, much more critical in terms of the overall socialization of young people. It's not just about academic subjects now. It's about behavior. It's about standards. It's about morals. And, And you see that across many countries in Europe. And I think almost sadly, schools have become critical in that now because it's not just about um, educating them in subjects. It's also about socialising them uh, because that doesn't necessarily happen so much in families in the way it used to. People don't have time. They're busy. Families are fractured. People don't necessarily go to church or feel part of their communities these days. So I think that's why there's so much pressure on education in most countries. Because when there's a problem in society, the only place you can guarantee that all young people will be where it might possibly be able to start to solve it is schools. 
And that's why there's often a saying that when society has an itch, it's the education system that gets scratched. Oh, okay. So there can be a lot of pressure there. Now, certainly central to any school are the teachers, but school systems are quite different around the world. Um, so does the role of the teacher in citizenship education change from place to place? Yeah. And that will vary from country to country because historically we we um, we have a definition of teachers in England as in loco parentis, which basically through the Latin means in place of the parent. So compared to France and Germany, our teachers take on a lot more of a pastoral role, not just teaching the kids, but looking after their welfare. And therefore, we've perhaps got more opportunities to move in that direction because of the way we're set up than in other places where a teacher is just a teacher of a subject. That happens in Germany, for example, and certainly in France. Yeah. So looking across Europe, who, in your opinion, is doing the best job at citizenship education? Uh, The Nordic countries, Scandinavia, Finland and Norway and Denmark in terms of the way their societies are organized for um, really having effective citizenship education, certainly around voice and participation and democratic schools. If you talk to the people there, they feel that citizenship education there is also under threat um, from a a lack of um, interest from politicians, from the challenges brought by uh, incomers coming into their societies from other parts of Europe, from other parts of the world and the challenges that brings to an inclusive system. It often depends on whether there is a a politician or a political party that really supports it. So I think the Czech Republic had a a really good um, education minister who then went on to become prime minister, who was very pro-citizenship education, and a lot actually happened. We had the same in in the UK. Spain had a really good push on citizenship education uh, about 10 years ago. And then the Catholic Church took umbrage at what was actually happening, feel it was threatening their power, and therefore um, they got the government to actually rein it back in. Can you tell me more about that? What do you recall? What was the, what was it that the Catholic Church objected to? Um, they didn't like citizenship education um, undermining the kind of uh, moral teachings that they were promoting. They felt it was a, it was a, it was a threat to. Um, a more secular view of the world, um, which isn't what they actually supported. So therefore, they saw that as a threat about young people. Young people starting to ask difficult questions, perhaps, um, and perhaps not attending church and those kind of things. So they used their political clout, which many churches have extensively in many countries, um, to actually remove it from the curriculum. Tell me more about other countries around the world uh, facing challenging situations. Are there places we might look to as warning signals? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a there's a concern where um, nationalist forces uh, have a very strong voice within the political system. You often find that if those parties come to power, uh, they often ask um, for their people to be put in as education ministers because they realise the importance of education in terms of uh, educating and influencing young people. So then what is the best way that countries can uh, learn from each other? I think it's more vital than ever that networks like NISI and others continue to promote, because I think there's a real danger now that um, post-COVID, with the challenges we actually get, that horizons get narrowed. What is NISI for those who may not? The Network of European Citizenship Citizenship Education. So it brings together different voices 
in a kind of broad-based sense from across Europe. People are involved in different citizenship education initiatives of all ages, from formal education, informal, um, and therefore it's a really powerful group to get a disparate um, mix of voices because I think there's a real danger that we um, we run out of comparative information about what's going on elsewhere. We get caught up in what's happening in our own little community, our own little world, which we might have to do for a while, but those bigger issues are still there. And they, they will need to be solved at a European level, whether we're in we're part of the EU or not. And therefore, we need Europe in the UK, for example, more than ever before, um, particularly for our younger people, because although we might be out of Europe, technically nothing's changed, is it? We're still across the water. Our young people engage with other European young people. Um, so it's important that those um, platforms continue and there is an opportunity for dialogue and communication at the point we need to look at these wider issues. You are listening to Education in Europe, brought to you by the Green European Foundation, with financial support from the Robert Bosch Stiftung and the European Parliament. Let's get back to our conversation. Today, kids are living much more of their lives online. Talk to me about social media and how the internet affects citizenship education efforts. Citizenship education now strongly needs to build in a digital citizenship dimension. I mean, most schools now have got policies about helping young people to be safe and aware on the internet, which is good at one level. And a lot of that's to do with sexual grooming and those kind of things. But also part of that might be who your part of groups are what you're promoting, who you're listening to, those kind of things. So you realise that there are people out there who've got dangerous views, that you ought to be careful if you're doing things that are likely to break the law because that's going to have implications for you, create a record, etc. But we're at the start of that process. But I think digital, I mean, it's the usual with these things. There are two sides to it, aren't there? There There are downsides, but there are also massive upsides as well in terms of the amount of information that young people have actually got, what they need help is how they do that responsibly. Because most citizenship education was about doing it responsibly as an active citizen in the idea of physical engagement. It wasn't about digital engagement. And I think that's the missing dimension and how you link the physical with the digital. And And hopefully, as these young people move through, so we'll become more digitally savvy, and it will just become a natural part of the way you engage as a citizen. You'll use the digital alongside the the physical. It will just be a, a, an added component in terms of the way you engage and communicate. But we actually need to educate people about how they actually do that, particularly young people, to stop those extremes of those young people getting radicalised across Europe and ending up in Syria um, or being part of a group and, and getting radicalised and doing actions that where they've been manipulated or they don't quite know what they're doing. We're living through the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm, I'm wondering, what has COVID-19 revealed to you about our communities? It's thrown a massive light on what it is to be um, an active, engaged and responsible citizen. And I think hopefully post-COVID, people will start to realise the importance of um, civic life in terms of um, putting us all together. And the things that help us function as communities, 
and start to recognize that we need to listen more to people and that would include young people. It's really uh, encouraged people to be socially and morally responsible in their actions, whether that's wearing masks, taking precautions, being careful about what they do. I think it's really helped us realize the communities that are important in our lives because a lot of people have had to rely on friends, neighbours to help them out with shopping and, and all those kind of things. I don't know what situation it's like in Germany, but I've lived I've lived in my street for about 25 years. I don't know half the neighbours. But as soon as COVID struck, we set up, we, me and my wife set up a WhatsApp group. So we've kind of been in touch with all the neighbours. There's a kind of little community now. We all came out to clap for the NHS. And that's still going on. People are helping each other. Um, yeah. And I think that lots of communities have really come together under that, uh, which yeah. I think is really important. And now what you're seeing is a kind of sense that people want change. They maybe have an opportunity to reflect on their lives and the way they were run and how busy they were. And maybe uh, post-COVID, they might want things to be slightly different in terms of their work-life balance, um, how they engage with their politicians and the kind of things that they want done protecting the NHS in, in in this country, for example, um, more flexible working uh, for young people dealing with climate change, dealing with the economy. So yeah. I think that's all positive from a citizenship education perspective. The danger is, in times of crisis, citizenship education is often seen by politicians as a luxury because the focus now will be on the economy, on jobs, and therefore, there's a danger that, as far as education is concerned, the emphasis will now go back to what politicians see as real subjects in schools, so maths, languages, science, to the detriment of things like citizenship education, which are almost seen as a luxury that you can promote when times are good. But when times are hard, you get back to the basics and you give kids the knowledge and skills that they need to get jobs. Um and I think that would be really unfortunate because uh, yeah. there's a real opportunity to build on the experiences that young people have had. I would have thought if schools have got any sense, rather than just chucking kids back into their lessons when they get back into school, they'll create opportunities for them to talk about what they've experienced and to learn from those kind of experiences. So in England now, we're trying to talk about possibly um, the politically literate school emerging a school that's become, that, that is now really at the centre of, of its community and, and, and is connected to it because of COVID and really can help young people to understand how that community's worked together and, and keep that community going through the activities that the school does. David Kerr, thank you so much for your time today. I learned a lot and you made my job quite easy. It was a wonderful conversation. I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything you would like to add or anything that you... Uh... Yeah, thanks to the people from the Robert Bosch Foundation for inviting me to do this. It was nice to be involved, so please thank them for me. Education in Europe is a Resonator radio production mixed and mastered in Berlin. A special thanks goes out today to the Green European Foundation and the Robert Bosch Stiftung. Our announcer is Nicola Seaton-Clark. The music you heard today is called Amplified by Rhodes. I'm your host and producer, Benjamin Lorch. Thanks for being here to listen. Auf Wiederhören. This has been Education in Europe. Thanks for listening.